So I think from an evolution standpoint, I feel very strongly about the fact that more participants, more diversity, and more evolution is, is always a good thing. So I'm even looking forward to like what comes next, because if we are to be the most dynamic internet ecosystem in the world, we need to now start to create opportunities for younger folks to participate in angel investing, for certain communities that have historically been left out of angel investing to bring them in as well. And if we get there, I think we will be one of the healthiest ecosystems in the world. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung. And in the Southeast Asia ecosystem, the rise of angel groups provided startup not just capital, but expertise and experience. And XA Network, which I'm part of, full disclosure, is a significant player in the space, given that it's a key aggregator of key tech executives, entrepreneurs and operators in the region. With me today, I have three guests, Alep Barawaj, Tony Zemakowski, and Belinda Ong from the XA Network to have a chat on the current angel investing landscape and where we are headed given the recent downturn in the stock market and crypto web3 market as well. Alep, Tony, and Belinda, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us, Bernard. Thanks, Bernard. So before we start, let's just do a quick introduction of yourselves and what are you currently doing in your professional lives and within the XA Network. Uh, so my name is Belinda Ong. I am the Managing Director here at the XA Network. What that means is that I'm basically in charge of, well, everything from investments to operations. And I've been part of the XA Network for three, almost four years now. Thank you so much for having us. Hi, everyone. My name is Alap. I work at Google. I have uh, now spent the better part of the last 10 years with the organization. And currently, I lead our innovation and creative go-to-market efforts across Asia Pacific. But alongside that, I've been working with uh, Belinda and Tony as part of the XA Network alongside Bernard as well. I find that the Southeast Asia region is one of the most compelling internet ecosystems globally, and therefore I'm a very active angel investor. I look forward to working with startups and backing them both with capital, but with expertise and advice as well. So that's a bit about me. Tony, how about you then? Hi, my name is Tony Zemekowski, and I'm the VP of Business Development at Netflix for the Asia-Pacific region. Been with Netflix for about six years, and previously I was with Google for nine years. I've also been a, an active angel investor for many years and very excited about this region. We, I strongly believe it's at an inflection point now. So I'm going to go straight into the topic. So first, to baseline our audience, I want to start off by getting a definition of what constitute an angel investor and their impact within the startup ecosystem. Maybe Ella or Tony, maybe you all want to take it out first. Happy to take it, Bernard. I mean, it's very simple. An angel investor is a, is a high net worth individual who is investing in typically in early stage companies and most of the time tech companies and the added value he or she is bringing to the, to the founder. Typically, an angel investor had a, had a career and a strong expertise, and that can be leveraged you know, with the founder. What I would add to that is, and I think Tony hit upon it, is that every angel investor's impact has to be disproportionate in nature. They are often the smallest investors in, within a startup, but in the early days are the ones that are helping startups unlock or get to their next level with things such as expertise, connections, and the ability to see around the corner that maybe startup and product builders who are deep in their work might not be able to see. So I think that's one of the things that ends up becoming a very important unifying theme for an angel investor, which is that their impact by definition needs to be disproportionate. So 
I'm very curious to ask, maybe I also include Belinda as well, given that she also started off as an angel investor within a network. How have all of you decided to become angel investors? Yeah, for sure. My route is quite interesting. Now, prior to Google, I spent a significant amount of time in my career in investment banking. And I came across the wonderful world of startups because of their capital raising needs, working with the venture capital ecosystem and, and, and private equity players as well. But for me, it became a reality when in 2016, I had an opportunity with Google to co-author and publish the Google Temasek Economy 2025 report. If you haven't read it, it's a report that Google, Temasek, and now Bain publish every single year about the strength of the digital economy in Southeast Asia. And back in 2016, I had a very simple question for myself once I wrote the report, which was that, look, if I believe in the region to such an extent that I've done this piece of work, why am I not backing the people who make the region so exciting, the founders, the builders? And so I started the Angel Invest back in 2016, and it just came about because I had a bit of self-realization that I deeply love this region and that I wanted to partner with people who were helping build a better future for the region. How about you, Tony? I started when I was living in Hong Kong back in uh, 2013, and it was almost by accident. I had a lunch with one of my former colleagues, and he told me, look, I'm running uh, an angel investment group in, in China, and why don't you come and join us and start uh, angel investing. And at that time, I had no idea whether or not I would enjoy angel investing, but I, I started, made a number of mistakes. Of course, it's part of the learning curve and really enjoy it. Obviously, the, the, the startup ecosystem in this part of the world was not very mature. So after a few years, I, I paused on my angel investing activities. And I restarted when I moved to, to Singapore and actually realized that the, uh, an ecosystem was forming there with very established VCs coming, with more angels coming, with the quality of founders becoming better. And then since then, I never stopped. So I've been investing uh, significantly in Southeast Asia now. Belinda, how about you? What's your journey like becoming an angel investor? Sure. So I've been in the direct investment space for the better part of a decade right now. I started off in an institutional fund, followed by a family office, looking at everything from angel stage up to $100 million growth equity checks. But at XA, talking to founders and angel investors day in, day out, I come to realize that it's very different looking at later stage versus an early stage company. And I get the most energized talking to founders, when, especially when I find that product market founder fit. And it's really, really difficult, I guess, when talking to these really high quality founders to not get um, excited and to also back them. So how has angel investing evolved in maybe Southeast Asia or even Asia Pacific as a region? Tony, because you started relatively early about 2013 and you looked at different ecosystems, whether it's Hong Kong or Singapore for different regions. What are your thoughts in terms of the evolution of that? Angel investing has significantly evolved uh, for the past few years. Initially, it was something that was kind of amateurish, and but now it's really professionalized with more established investment net networks such as the Exa Network, but also some scout program where basically you have some established VC firm that are working with angels to, to source deals. So there are a number of uh, scout programs in, in this region from Sequoia Capital, Saison Capital, Monk Seal. So it's really a recognition that angels are part of the ecosystem and can really provide value. How about you, Ella? 
How have you think about it since the report that you do now is the annual retreat for Google and Tomasic to have that report talks about all the different things that's happening in Southeast Asia. It's almost like the state of the internet, but for the Southeast Asia region itself. Yeah, I think it's a true testament to the strength of this ecosystem that we have so many participants, as Tony's mentioned. I believe that more participants, more points of view, diversity of thought is really the core key ingredients that move us from zero to one, one to a hundred, and then beyond. Now, Bernard, you know that, you know, we've had these five companies, six companies who've gone public. I think that in and of itself is a great indicator towards the strength and towards the evolution and that Tony mentioned. But remember, all of those companies probably had angel investors at the start. And the thing that gives me the most confidence is that every major startup that I meet these days always builds a round of funding around both institutional investors and individual investors, because there's a deeper appreciation for the fact that both of these players play a significant role, but they play different roles and both are needed. So I think from an evolution standpoint, I feel very strongly about the fact that more participants, more diversity, and more evolution is, is always a good thing. So I'm even looking forward to like what comes next, because if we are to be the most dynamic internet ecosystem in the world, we need to now start to create opportunities for younger folks to participate in angel investing, for certain communities that have historically been left out of angel investing to bring them in as well. And if we get there, I think we will be one of the healthiest ecosystems in the world. So pretty curious now, and I think... As angel investor, what are the indicators that you look for before investing in a startup? Because it's so early at the stage and you're actually bearing a lot of the risk as well. I think a lot of people do not appreciate that most angel investors are actually bearing a lot of risk by being so early in investing in companies as such. Maybe I can take that. I mean, typically an angel investor is investing very early stage. Sometime before product, before any revenues. So you are left with... Uh, basically assessing the founder and assessing the size of the market. On the founder, I think it's uh, the most, probably the most important thing. You need to get to know the founder. You need to see whether this founder has clarity of thoughts, resilience, but also storytelling skills. And that is very important because we want, you want to be, to be sure or to make sure that the founder has this ability to pivot if something goes wrong. You also want to be sure that the founder has the storytelling uh, story skills so that he can raise capital and can effectively hire people. The other thing as well that I'm looking at personally in this part of the world is founders that are solving local challenges. So I believe that startups that are successful are startups that are solving challenges from Southeast Asia. Hello, what about you, Dan? Yeah, it's very similar to what Tony's mentioned, but I'll start from scratch. For me, there's an element around founder problem fit that matters a great deal. And what I mean by that is, I think we've all heard of product market fit. What founder problem fit is, is this founder uniquely positioned to solve the problem that they're going after? And oftentimes, the way you can see this is, has this founder tried solving this problem before? Has the founder really gone through what, say, Andreessen Horowitz and, and the group over there calls the idea maze? Have they chased down every single angle? And you get to know this when you spend time with founders. 
The second thing that becomes very important to me is capability. We might say that there's not much that has been built out at the early stage, but I always like to see a technical co-founder paired with a business co-founder. I think when you have two technical co-founders or two business co-founders, I worry. I, th that, that is an orange flag that sort of goes up for me. And I think there is a Darwinian survival of the fittest sort of angle to it when a business person and a, a product or a engineering background person kind of come together, they understand that the other person fills gaps that they have. They're willing to trust each other and they're willing to go from there and, and, and build something that'll change the world. The last thing that I really look for to Tony's point around solving local uh, problems is, yes, they if they're building a business in Southeast Asia, they must be working on a Southeast Asia related opportunity. But even more so, I would say that they need to be working on an opportunity that has a large addressable market. The reason for this is it gives you more shots on goal and thereby probably reduces your risk going forward if there is any such thing. And I say this with the caveat that, as you rightly said, it is a very, very risky thing to do. But you have to try and pick out a few things that will try and diminish the risk as the arrow of time moves forward. If I reverse the question, what would be the red flags you will look for as well? There are a few. One of them is part-time founders, founders that are not committed, basically doing two things at the same time. They don't have the focus. The second piece is I'm trying to understand whether their location is a competitive advantage or a liability. So if a founder is based in Singapore and trying to build a, a global company, I believe they would be better off in, a, in another location where basically you have a, you know, better access to talent, better access to capital. On the flip side, if he, he or she is based in Singapore, it's a great location uh, to solve Southeast Asia problem. So it has to be a competitive advantage. And the third piece, I try to look at founders that are not too diluted at the early stage because you want to make sure that when you invest, that the, the founders are incentivized to give everything they have to the, to the startup. So I'm looking uh, quite closely at the cap table when I invest. Hello. <laughs> I think I mentioned it before. I like to see a mix of co-founders with different skill sets. I think if that's not the case, that is a red flag to me. But the second thing is around, I want founders to, to have thought of their problem and solution set to such a degree that they're able to paint a vision. And that vision needs to have stepping stones to it. So if the vision is sort of all over the place and the route to that vision is also all over the place, that's a bit of a red flag to me. Finally, I really want to say that when founders are unable to exhibit a level of hunger and a level of self-awareness, these two things are critical for me. So when these two don't come together, if it's only hunger, it's a problem. If it's only self-awareness, but that sort of endeavor is not present in, in how they're going to market, how they're executing, I think that becomes a red flag. So uh, it's, it's, it's in this zone, Bernard. So that, that's kind of how I think about it. So I have, a, I have this question that I want you all to all comment on is, what is the mental model for valuation when it comes to investing in early stage startup as angel investors? Maybe I'll start with Belinda first. 
What's your mental model? I think the model depends if it's a Web 2 versus a Web 3 company. If it's a Web 2 company, of course, there's always、uh, revenue multiples that you can look at,、uh, and there's some comparables. But if it's a Web 3 one, then and there are tokens involved, then you have to start considering what's the demand and supply like an economy. So that's a very very different animal. One more thing to consider as well. Is to be cognizant of the market conditions. So the numbers that we've seen, the valuations we've seen in the past couple of years, there's no longer to going to apply in the next few months, especially. So I guess the only thing I would say is just be cognizant of that as a founder when、um, discussing valuations. Alan, what about you? How how do you think about valuations as an angel investor? Yeah. So I if I sort of try and. Unpack your question, Brad. What I'm guessing you're actually getting after is the fact that when you have a company that has barely a product, no revenues, almost no traction, how do you value an entity of that sort? And so, in my estimation, I think this as an exercise or being too rigid around a mental model can actually trip angel investors up. What I often look at is like, how much are you raising? You, that is a fixed and finite number, and from there you can back out. What percentage a founder would like to dilute? What is a healthy dilution level? And from there, you can back out a valuation. That's kind of kind of how I look at it. But I will also say something controversial here. Belinda's made a great point that market conditions are very important. But I also want to say that my personal investing strategy is I am fairly valuation insensitive, because there is a power law when it comes to angel investing or VC investing. One company will return the same amount of proceeds as, say, the next 40 companies. The biggest miss is the false negative, the company that actually becomes a unicorn. So, being very fussed about things like super early stage valuations is probably the wrong way to look at it. What you should be optimizing for is what are the best founders that I can back, even if I have to pay a little bit more. To back those founders, and I think that's something that stood me in great stead over my angel investing、uh, career, and it's a slightly different way to think about how to think about valuation, I guess. Tony, what about you? How, how do you think about it? No, I, I would definitely echo what、uh, Alad just said. The only thing I would add is, of course, you can justify a higher valuation when you already have a product, you have a team, you have a CTO, you demonstrate the beginning of attraction. That can justify a higher valuation, but yeah, if you have none of that, what I've been looking at is also the the track record of the, of the founders, whether or not those founders are repeat founders and they had success in the past. That can also justify a higher valuation. And of course, you need to look at the market condition, whether or not there is a lot of competition for that particular investment, and that can also drive the the valuation up. And to Alap's point, you have to be pragmatic. If you truly believe that this is the right team to solve that particular problem, at some point the valuation is less important. If you want to be part of their journey, regardless of the valuation, of course it has to be reasonable. But I think what is important is backing the right founder, solving the the right problems. Which is pretty aligned to the point that Belinda made just now about market conditions, and probably now I think Web two and Web three valuations are all going to be down to ground level because of the recent downturn. And given that Y Combinator and Sequoia Capital sent out their memos to founders, there will be liquidity crunch. You better start having runways of twelve to twenty four months. Now, let me ask you this: If X A were to send a memo, or you were write a memo to your startups like what I do, which I put it in a three pointer and send it out. 
What would be that memo look like to the Southeast Asia founders? Yeah, sure. I think I'll focus on two. As a founder, you need to have clarity uh, on the problem you're trying to solve. And second point is the resources that you are applying to solve that problem. So for clarity, focus on your monetization model, ensure that you have a sustainable business and get to product market fit if you don't um, already have it as quickly as possible. Right? Stop running expensive experiments. It doesn't make sense. Resources are finite, so therefore you'll be super resourceful. Revisit your budget, revisit your hiring plans, ensure you have enough uh, runway to survive. And if not, have those really honest conversations, especially with your early backers, because they can help. They can help in many different ways. Tony, what would you write? Let's say you were given a chance to write an MMO to, to startups that you invested in. If I have to quote, you know, Winston Churchill, he said that never waste a good crisis. And I feel that a crisis like what we are going through now is a great opportunity for founder to be very laser focused on solving the right problems being scrappy. And also those kind of crises are driving innovation because when there is less capital available, you need to innovate. You need to find opportunities to be highly efficient. So that's why back in 2008, 2009, you saw great companies emerging from those crises. Companies like uh, Uber or Airbnb emerged from right after the credit crunch. So I feel it's, uh, honestly, it's a great opportunity. Of course, founders should be mindful that it's, it's, a, it's a difficult environment, but I feel that amazing company will emerge from that. So what would your memo be to your startup founders now? Yeah, I think it's going to be a mix of what Belinda and Tony have said. I think they've made excellent points. The way I mm. would just put it across is, I think Y Combinator, Paul Graham, they have this very pithy way of putting it across, get to default alive. If you're wondering what default alive or default dead means, I would Google this. It's one of the best things you'll read about startup investing and startups in general. So to, to our founders, get to default alive. The second is to Belinda's point around really lasering in, being extremely focused on your core. This is the time where you put not more wood behind fewer arrows. You have one arrow and you put all the wood behind that one arrow. And that's the that's the path you take on. I think if this can be done, you will find that there are investors who have liquidity in this market. There's a ton of capital that got raised over the last four or five years. And clarity alongside good unit economics being default alive, rounds will get raised. Not to worry, rounds will get raised. So I'm very I'm quietly confident that that will be the the, the state of affairs going forward. But the the age of wasteful expenditure to maybe Belinda's point around expensive experiments. I think that is probably well and truly behind us. It will return. And the last little point I'll make, Bernard, is that this is not a bug. This is a feature of economies. Economies inflate and deflate. We are in a we are in that period where it's going to be a little tough. We need to go through this period so that we all emerge uh, to form enduring companies, to form companies that actually change the world. So I love the way Tony put it across, which was never waste a good crisis. This is that crucible moment. Sequoia, you know, has just recently put out the deck, which calls it um, the very same. And it's a time to build. I think that's the way to look at it. So I'm going to pivot a little bit and just talk about the XA network in general. Maybe I'll just go with Belinda, given that you have been doing the day in, day outs for the network itself. Probably first thing I also understand that XA originated as from being Googlers first before open to everyone else in the tech ecosystem to join. Can you talk a little bit about the rationale of that? 
as well. We're happy to talk about what inspired the creation of the XA Network. So every founding member that came together to form XA, they all have a different reason for joining. But the common thread across all of them is that we recognize that there was a lot of capital you know, sloshing around the Southeast Asian region, but a lack of what we like to call smart capital, which is that mix of highly relevant network and expertise that can help unlock the next level of growth for startups. So we've actually seen this power of smart capital in other startup hubs across the world. The most famous example is probably the PayPal mafia in the Silicon Valley region. And I think what we've come to realize is that it's a natural artifact as a startup hub matures. So like the senior leaders that have been in the region for so long, they're unlikely to leave, but they'll want to do something purposeful and help the next generation of founders. And these you know, senior leaders, these individuals, they're success, they're, they have successful track records. And so they're uniquely qualified to do that. And in fact, like talking to founders in this part of the world and explaining how we all came together and the origin is resonated very strongly with these founders. And they've actually set aside allocation specifically because they recognize the type of value that we can bring as the XA network. I think one, one interesting question I get sometimes from people via emails, via LinkedIn messages is, how do you get into the XA network? What is the criteria to evaluate? Maybe you can enlighten us on that. Sure, no problem, no problem. We get, that, we get this all the time. So our membership criteria is actually on our website, but at a very high level, uh, two things. One is, of course, to be an accredited investor, and this follows the Singapore definition. And the second is that they need to be a tech leader because we are tech leaders helping the ecosystem. And how we define a tech leader is either they are a senior executive from a tech company that has more than a billion dollar in valuation, or they are a founder that has created a company with more than $100 million in enterprise value. We also, apart from these you know, quantitative type criteria, we also try to assess whether or not this prospective member will be able to contribute to XA in terms of growing the number of quality founders and members that we welcome into the community because we really want to support and engage the ecosystem. So fast forward to today, can you just highlight a little bit about some of the key achievements for the XA network itself? So right now we have about 140 members spread across the Southeast Asian region. This gives us a great advantage in terms of member and founder sourcing because it gives us a local boots on the ground understanding. And the founders really appreciate this when they approach our members for help and advice. On the founder side, we're backed more than 120 founders from across almost 60 companies. And these companies, they range from fintech to e-commerce, even Web3 and alternative protein companies. 40% of the companies that we're back to date have actually gone on to raise more than a half a billion dollars in follow-on capital from funds such as Insight Partners, Tiger Global, Sequoia, and many other top-tier funds. I guess one other thing to also wanted to highlight is that we've also launched a collaboration with Stashaway. It's a matching program which enables us to further increase the amount that we can invest and back the founders that our members believe in. Is there an investment thesis within the XA network? So I think it's uh, very similar to the thesis that Tony and Alap mentioned earlier in the call, which is we are backing founders solving Southeast Asian specific challenges. And we're really interested to understand how establishing the business in this part of the world is part of the company's strategy and competitive. So for example, I wouldn't, I wouldn't actually highlight specific verticals, except say that we are very interested in technology companies or technology-enabled companies, but we're interested in 
startups focusing on digitizing SMEs uh, because SMEs are the backbone of the Southeast Asian economy and they represent one in 60% of the GDP in this region. So that's what I would say in terms of verticals and segments. So what was the process like for startups to engage the network and seek investment from the angels there? There's actually a process. Yes, there is a process. There is a process and we get this question all the time. So we've actually put it on our website on the how to partner with us page. But at a very mm -hmm. high level, just to help recap, once we receive a pitch deck from founders looking to raise round members, the deck actually goes to our review committee, which comprises of some of the most active members, some who are, of course, senior tech leaders, others who have actually run uh, venture capital funds before. And if it goes through, uh, then we actually set up two separate chats with members of the review committee. And if those chats also go through, then we will set up a one hour ask me anything call between the founders as well as the members that are keen to partner with them. So this whole process really only asks for three hours from the founder is extremely streamlined because we really, really value and are very conscious of how time strapped a lot of founders are. So we want to be as founder friendly as possible. Maybe this is the last question relating to the network itself. How do you help the founders and the startups once the angel invests in them? Mm, we get this question all the time. It can range, right, from very high level and strategic to something very tactical. At the end of the day, we want to help the founders as much as possible at that particular point of their growth. So for strategic help, what I've heard from founders is that some members have actually sat down for and held hours-long workshops with them to discuss how to prioritize markets to expand to, maybe even talk through GTM and pricing and how it needs to be localized from country to country, which is really important in this path of work. For tactical help, some examples that I've heard would be, for example, a portfolio company had issues with fraudulent reviews. And we, one of the members actually knew the head of that particular app store. So called them up and we got that resolved within 24 hours. The great thing about the network really is that our members have a wide variety of expertise. They come from all sorts of different functions. So if I were to categorize the types of functions that our members can help with, it would include things like business development, talent acquisition, product development, fundraising, policy regulation and governance, engineering consulting, and so on and so forth. I just want to wrap back to the conversation back from XA Network and also one thing because we are all angels as part of this network as well. I wanted to hear each one of you talk about some of the interesting startups that you have invested within the network. Maybe uh, I'd love to get you back to talk a little bit about uh, which are the most interesting startups that you have invested in. Yeah, for sure. This is the part I always uh, love discussing. Look, before you know, I say it, I think it's just a real privilege that these founders allowed me to invest. I always, I always have to you know, really acknowledge that they choose us. It's not that we choose them. And just to be on this journey, to see the sort of hard work, but also technical prowess that's been deployed is such a deep privilege. And let me, let me start with one of the points that Belinda made around the SME ecosystem in Southeast Asia. We are in Southeast Asia, we have one of the most productive ecosystems, right? To Belinda's point, over 60% of the GDP in our region is coming from SMEs. So what becomes very important is building a software stack that helps digitize their operations, that helps them step into this new world that most of us in tech are fairly familiar with, but that they are just taking their first few steps on. And so here, one of my most, I would say the, the investment I'm really proud of is a company that was formerly known as Bukukas, that today is known as Lumo. 
This, by the way, is a company that is seeing that has multiple products, but is seeing multiple percentage points of Indonesia's GDP actually flowing through their their apps in terms of throughput. They make a wonderful bookkeeping product called Bukukas. They make a phenomenal Shopify-esque product for SMEs called Lumo Shop. And just to see the product management and UX expertise that's sort of gone into solving the problems for warung owners, SME owners, has been just, it's been one of the most heartening things for, for myself. Now, this theme continues for me. I'll give you another example. One of my favorite investments is in a company called Autoflix. And they, very similarly, are also trying to digitize the automotive aftermarket for auto workshops in Indonesia. Again, you can imagine that this is a, a secular theme that can exist across multiple uh, verticals. And, and so finally, I'll probably just end by saying that the last company I'll mention right now is focused on spend management for SMEs. And it's a company called Spendmo that's based out of Singapore, but is targeting the entire of Southeast Asia and probably even beyond. It's a company that is allowing SMEs to, allowing them access to financial services and spend management through digital cards, through debit cards, and so on and so forth. And seeing some of those NPS scores from the SMEs is really sort of what makes, makes our day here. So just looking at each of those three, very clear in terms of solving for Southeast Asia, solving for opportunities in this vast and diverse region, and just being part of these journeys is one of the things that, that gives me some of the most satisfaction when it, when it comes to my personal life. So that's it for me. Tony, how about you? What, what are the most interesting startups that you have invested? I mean, all of them are interesting, but there are, <laughs> I'll just mention... Um... A couple of them. One that come to mind, which actually emerged during COVID, is a company named Intellect. So this company is essentially a, a mental health startup based out of Singapore, and created by um, you know a founder who is actually Singaporean, and we, we came out from the from NOC. And basically, his thesis is that in Asia, and particularly in Southeast Asia, people are facing a lot of issues with mental health. And some of that has been triggered with COVID. And they definitely need help, but they are not necessarily taking the first step in order to see someone. So basically, using an app is lowering the barrier in order to get some help and assistance from someone on your, on your mental health. This company has been very successful. They attracted millions of users and have been backed by top venture capital firms. Uh, White Combinator has been backing them, Huff Capital, Insignia. So very proud of what this company has achieved and particularly trying to solve a big problem that we are facing. The, the second one I like is, uh, is a company that, that is focusing on parenting it's a company called Edamama, based out of, out of the Philippines. They are doing extremely well. They are also branching out into direct-to-customer by launching their own brand. And their traction has been truly amazing. Of course, been accelerated with COVID because more and more people are buying product online. They are doing extremely well. And I've been quite excited to see more interesting startups coming out of the Philippines. Because when uh, I started investing in Southeast Asia, most of the startup came out of Singapore and Indonesia. So now more from the Philippines, more from Vietnam as well, and hopefully, you know, more from Thailand and other countries as well. So I'm particularly excited about that. Belinda, what about you? 
What are the most interesting ones? It's good to have the two super angels in this conversation highlight those companies. I'm going to zoom out of the region. And I think this is something that um, you all have seen a lot of startups in country. What are your perspectives in the Southeast Asia ecosystem, specifically when it comes to thinking about geographic expansion and also different macroeconomic conditions. I mean, you, Singapore, I would consider an, it's an advanced market versus the emerging markets around, or maybe if I think of, say, Cambodia or even Myanmar, it's more like a frontier market. How do you all think about the entire region when it comes to thinking about these things like market expansion, Southeast Asia, as I said, is at a, an inflection point. The growth is not coming only from Singapore and Indonesia, but as I said before, I'm very excited about the startup ecosystem in, in the Philippines. So I mentioned Edamama, which is doing really well. I, I invested also in a, in a company called Peddler, which is similar to Bukukas that Alap mentioned, is doing a bookkeeping for the, the Sari Sari store in the Philippines. In Vietnam, I, I saw also, you know, significant, uh, I mean, quite interesting startup there. One of them that I backed last year is a startup named Infina. It's essentially um, the equivalent of, you know, Endowers or Stash Away for Vietnam. And I've been quite amazed, you know, by the, the, the innovation in, in Vietnam and particularly the, the talent you can find in that market, specifically when it comes to engineers. So I'm, I'm very, very, very bullish about Southeast Asia overall and Vietnam specifically, given the talent you can find from there in terms of engineering. Alep, how do you think about the markets within the region itself? Yeah, so I think there are two points for me. from me. I think the very first is, I mean, you'll remember, right? Back, say, four or five years ago when we were investing, I think one of the things that we would probably really stick to was Either a startup is coming out of Singapore and is doing a regional Southeast Asia strategy, or a startup is coming out of Indonesia and is doing an Indonesia-only strategy. But I think the delightful thing over the last, say, 24 months has been, to Tony's point, we've got these individual countries that have stepped up and have exhibited that a total addressable market is large, is growing, and that providing a Robin Hood for Vietnam is going to be profitable and thereby Tony's investment in Infina. And so I think that has been one major plus point if you look at expansion. Now, what I'd love to underline is a subtext there, which is no longer can you take regional expansion for granted. If you do not understand local dynamics, if you do not have a deep local connection to each market you're expanding into, forget about it. The local competitors are phenomenal uh, and they will eat you for breakfast. It's not going to be easy if you just feel like, oh, I'm going to start off in Singapore and I'm going to be able to launch in Vietnam and the Philippines and Indonesia and Malaysia and Thailand. It's just not going to happen, folks. The local competitors are already there and they're building. So the second point that I, uh, I often end up thinking about is talent, especially engineering talent. And I think one thing that we all know is that engineering talent in Southeast Asia is hard to come by. It's already been snapped up by most of the large unicorns or the larger companies. But I've been finding a very interesting dynamic, which I think will help with expansion as well, which is while engineering talent can be offshore, product management talent can be onshore. So what I love is when you're building for Indonesia, if you have PMs who are Indonesian and who are on the ground, but you might have a development team that is based out of Europe or based out of Africa or based out of India that is SUI talent, software engineering talent that can then help support. And I think this combination 
of offshore engineering talent, which is high quality, paired with onshore PM talent that really knows their market back in front, I think is going to be a really good recipe for expansion going forward. So these are the these are the couple of points that I'd like to make on this front. I'm pretty curious now, given that we are now moved out of I call it the post-pandemic world, what are the key trends that you have now observed in the market that will give you some indication of what it is going to evolve towards? Any thoughts on that? Sure. So I'd like to pick up on one theme that I think is fairly unifying, and that's financial inclusion. And I, I love sharing this stat because it really uh, is indicative of how we need to think about financial inclusion going forward in Southeast Asia, especially as the global youth, Southeast Asian youth sort of come into, into the picture. In Indonesia, the all-time buyers of stocks, equity, all-time, is just about 3 million people. Meanwhile, the all-time buyers for cryptocurrency is in the 10 to 11 million, double-digit million range. We're talking 4x over what we have in, in say, a, a more traditional sense. So financial inclusion in Southeast Asia in the next 10 years is going to look very different to financial inclusion in the United States of America or even financial inclusion in India. So my encouragement is that when we have these amazing fintech businesses that are sort of getting built out, please keep in mind that the sands are shifting. They probably already have shifted. And you need to now skate to where the puck is going, not to where it's been. So I think for me, that is a, that's, that's one thing that I really love to focus on right now, which is how financial inclusion is probably changing for Southeast Asia. Hmm. There's a pretty good report that just came out by the World Bank on Web3 and crypto. And one important data point that actually reinforces that 60% of cryptocurrency owners are actually from the emerging markets. And Southeast Asia is actually the top three markets. Yep. If you look at on, MetaMask's on MetaMask active wallet holders, I mean, Bernard is better than me, but the top in the top 10, you've got five of them are from Southeast Asia. Five Southeast Asian countries are in the top 10. So it really is changing. And I think we have to think in these new paradigms. Tony, what about you? What is going to be most exciting for you? I'd like to double click on, on what Alap said. Definitely, I mean, crypto is, is big in Southeast Asia and will continue to be big. But I see companies that are democratizing crypto. And I think that's a massive opportunity because you want crypto to become really, really mass and make sure that anyone can get access to it. So I've seen companies that are, you know, building products in order to make it simple to invest in crypto. And I, I think that is going to be a step change, a game changer when it comes to crypto investment in this part of the world. So I've been looking into that now. I have one last question before we go to closing and that's for Belinda. What does GREAT look like for the XA network? So GREAT for the XA network would be when our members are able to partner with founders that can firstly create sustainable businesses and second, have a positive impact on the communities that they are in. So similar to what Tony and Alap mentioned, that point about financial inclusion, or it could even be things like reducing carbon footprint. And third, if they can effectively utilize that technology to multiply that impact on society as a whole. I think if we're able to achieve this in each and every country across Southeast Asia, that would be great for the XA Network. Belinda, Alec, and Tony, many thanks for coming on the show. But in closing, I still have two questions for you. My first question, any recommendations that have inspired you recently? Maybe I'll start with 
Tolin? Given that I'm from Netflix, I'm going to uh, share a <laughs> Netflix recommendation. Particularly enjoy watching a documentary called 14 Peaks. It's about a Nepalese climber who is basically climbing the, the 14 highest peak in the world for more than 8,000 meters. And I think it's a great lesson of resilience. In terms of uh, book recommendation, I'm currently reading The Power Law, which is a great history of uh, venture capital and has been quite fascinating. By Sebastian Malaby, The Power Law. That's the book you're talking about. That's right. Yeah, and Tony, definitely I'll get you back to talk about Netflix sometime, some point in time. Alec, what about you? Okay, so from my side, a couple of book recommendations. Speaking of never wasting a good crisis, I think required reading during this period is The Black Swan by Nassim Taleb. And I would pair reading The Black Swan, read Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman at the same time. The way this will short circuit your brain into thinking differently is non-trivial. I highly, highly recommend reading both of these books at the same time. So read one chapter of one and a, a chapter of the other. A second recommendation is, uh, this is a recommendation I'm giving with a lot of hope. I am a huge Star Wars fan and Star Wars nerd. And so the recommendation I hope to put out into the universe, and hopefully it's a great TV show, is the Obi-Wan Kenobi show uh, that's about to launch on uh, Disney+. Plus. So fingers crossed and everybody watch it. Hopefully it's great. Thank you. It's today anyway. So you are going to watch it tonight. <laughs> I'm also a Star Wars fan too. Belinda, what about you? Any recommendations? Yes, in terms of book recommendations, what I would say would be great reading to better understand early stage investing would be Secrets of Sand Hill Road by Scott Kapoor. Another great book read recently was uh, Super Founders by Ali. And since Tony is here, I guess I need to mention a Netflix uh, show as well. The latest season of Love, Death and Robots is out. I love speculative sci-fi. So that's what I recently binged. The last question how do my audience find you? I'll start from Belinda. Is it on LinkedIn? I, I, I'm trying to find your Twitter account. <laughs> no, I don't have a Twitter account. Um, but yes, you can find me on LinkedIn or feel free to email me as well. Belinda at xanetwork.co. Hello. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at, at alapjb and you can uh, hit me up on LinkedIn as well. Tony, how about you? So you can find me on uh, LinkedIn as well as by email, tony.zam at gmail.com. You can find this podcast on any podcast platform. And just one important note, this particular episode will be cross-post between both Analyze Asia and also on the XA podcast. So you're going to get a double special on that. And actually, I will give a recommendation. Do check out the XA podcast because they have very, very good guests. Some of the guests I also want to interview. So Tony, Belinda, and Alap, many thanks for coming on the show. And I look forward to speak to you all soon. Thank you so much, Brian. It was amazing. Thank you for having us. Run it, run it, run it.